Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Dude, this guy, he asked me a question yesterday about radiology and I wasn't sure, so I emailed Dr. Benson about it. He responds back with the answer saying, hey, also, like, send me back a PowerPoint slide with all this stuff, so I know you understand it. <laughs> like, this wasn't even my question. <laughs> Hello, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Todd Fredericks, uh, family physician and assistant professor of family medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and we're here with another episode of Rotations. I uh, have a great guest this week, uh, someone who affects everybody's... Well, he, if, he, he and his organization have an input into every single osteopathic medical student's life. I will just tell you that. And you probably have heard... You probably never heard of them, but they have heard of you. So with that, I'm going to give this to Nisarg Bakshi. It's quite an introduction. Yes, it is our host, and we're going to talk. Go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Welcome to another episode of Rotations. Uh, my name is Nisarg Bakshi, a second-year medical student, and we're joined today with Dr. Tyler Simon, who, like Dr. Fredericks alluded to, is the chief of clinical education uh, at the American Association of College of Osteopathic Medicines, or AACOM. Um, he's joining us from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, so uh, we're excited to have you on, Dr. Simon. Thank you. I'm actually joining you from ACAM in Bethesda, Maryland, in our new offices. Oh, all right. <laughs> That's awesome. Next and to the $2.7 million condos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're also, yeah, we're also joined by uh, our two special people off the street, as we like to have on the show, uh, two of my classmates, Ash Khan and Zach. Uh, so thanks for joining us. They're going to chime in with some questions, and we're going to have some good discussion. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Of course. So, uh, Dr. Simon, let's, let's start with uh, your background. Tell us about how you got to where you are today. Well, I've got a new fashion 21st century background. I came from New York, finished elementary school in Israel. Then I took some competency-based um, tests to finish high school early, worked for a couple of year, year and a half before starting college, and then became who I was after medical school, um, internship and residency that taught me to be a primary care provider, how to relate to people, gave me a position in society, and that's where I started my life. So how did you end up at AACOM? Um, I didn't so much end up at AACOM as I decided to change my life after October of 2001 and the anthrax, the postal anthrax attack of 2001. Basically, I was a primary care doc taking care of people, and I had a number of patients show up into the ER in my office with strange symptoms, swelling, weakness, things that couldn't be explained. And they turned out to be the first victims of a bioterror attack. They were the victims of weaponized anthrax. And in taking care of these people, I realized there was no system to take care of them, no structure to take care of them. They didn't fit into anything that made any sense. And as a result, they were pushed out of the system and basically left on their own. So advocating for the three patients I had with symptoms of weaponized anthrax told me how to get involved in policy. And having worked at Sinai Hospital of Baltimore and taught at the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine, education was my entree to policy and the structure of medical care, how it was provided, how it's organized, and what our thought architecture is when we access medical education, access health care, and try to figure out the role of health in our lives. So I guess that was a long answer. No, that's, that's really interesting. I'm just curious, at, you know, at what point when you saw these patients did you start to consider that maybe it was an anthrax? attack rather than something more conventional, I guess. Well, most primary care docs will tell you that 
between two to five times a year, someone shows up with something that makes no sense and doesn't fit into what we were taught. And that's really the starting point of inquiry and the starting point of thinking. And maybe, you know, I saw 3,500 to 4,000 patients a year. So it's not a large number, but they stand out. And they come back and they shake you and say, you're not helping me. And you can say, yeah, you're right. Sometimes you are and they're just not taking your advice. But sometimes we don't know what's going on with people. It doesn't make sense. And a lot of what we teach primary care docs to do is to go deeper, to keep going until you get an answer or an explanation for what's going on. And in following that advice, you find that sometimes there's not an answer. Sometimes it's just a matter of waiting till people get sick enough. I mean, I've often found that irritable bowel disease took two to three years for me to come to, a, to an answer. Gallbladder disease often hid from me. Some of it is, if you don't have someone who looks like they should have gallbladder disease, when do you give them the diagnosis? So you find the diagnoses that you take longer because of your perspective to come to, and um, you try and use the relationship to hold on to the patients until you can come up with the answer. Because not everyone is going to get the million-dollar workup. You're not going to send everyone to the answer machine and get a CAT scan, MRI, and electrophysiological testing. You, you can't do that. It, it's invasive. It's painful. So before you send someone to the answer machine, you have to address who they are, what's going on with them, how much of it is your knowledge, and how much of it is knowing what's going on with the, with the patient. Mm -hmm. So your current position at AACOM is the chief of clinical education, right? So Tell us a little bit about what that title means. What are your responsibilities? So AACOM is the American Association of Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine. People know us because we take your applications. We run <laughs> in homes. So if you want to go to medical school and you're applying to an osteopathic medical school, there's a common application. We've standardized it. Everyone used to ask almost the same questions, but not quite the same questions. We made life a little bit easier by saying we're going to have one application that addresses all the standard questions, and then if you want to apply to different schools, you click a box and you get to apply to multiple schools. So we take your MCAT scores, we take your college transcripts, we take your diplomas, and we verify them. We make sure you're telling the truth. So you only have to do it once. We send it to the schools who then have their own way of evaluating students. And they may send you a supplemental and say, why do you want to come to Pikeville, Kentucky? What's your connection to um, Yakima, Washington? Are you a citizen of the state of Ohio? Um, and they, um, each individual school will then address their own unique mission, their own needs, and their own priorities in who they take. Because one thing every pre-med knows, there are a lot more qualified students to become physicians and there are spots to become physicians. As an employee of ACOM, I can tell you there are minimum scores that we look at to know that there's a 95% chance of you getting through medical school, passing all your tests, and getting to practice. And out of that number of students who have the qualifications, about half get in. The other half will reapply the next year, find other things to do like master's degrees. Some will go into other careers, um, engineering, physical physician's assistant, um, and find other ways of getting into healthcare. But it doesn't mean they weren't smart enough. It means they didn't fit the profile that the schools were looking for. And oftentimes it's 
the strategy a student has to get to medical school and to get to be a doctor as much as their qualifications. And I don't think students have fully grasped um, the need to have a strategy and to match themselves to a school and not just to assume it's gonna happen because they've done what needs to be done. So, so then when you're setting up these standards, uh, do you have uh, like a list of priorities then or, or like what, what's your approach when you're kind of laying out what you want this educational system to look like? Well, we always start with what's already being done. What is being taught? What do our schools do? And then we look at what some of our schools do differently, what they provide. And then a lot of times there are interest groups or new knowledge or new things coming out that, that need to be addressed, that need to be put into the curriculum. I think most people realize the internet, information science, and health system science is out there staring us in the face going, we matter, and we need to figure out within medical schools how to address health system science, the science of how people access healthcare, how they get healthcare, how they look at health in totality. Where does it fit in your life? Do you wake up and run? Do you wake up and eat healthy? Do you not wake up and eat at all? And, run straight to class. Those are aspects of health that we really need to get more into the curriculum and address in education. How much um, freedom do you give each school to kind of take their own way with the curriculum that you kind of, the standardized curriculum that you set out for the school? The curriculum comes from the college. Each school has the freedom to develop its own curriculum and the curriculum that comes from the college is usually developed by the faculty and a curriculum committee that says what's important for that area. So an area that's more rural will address rural health care. An area, that, an area that has, if you're out west, you address different diseases than, than if you're out east. So there are different issues that each college addresses. And we do have COCA, the Commission on Osteopathic College Accreditation, that sets guidelines in terms of which basic sciences need to be on faculty, which clinical sciences need to be included. And once you have the pe people to teach that, they work with the school and with the, with the students, with the faculty, with the university to decide what's gonna be put in the curriculum. So it is a lot more complicated than saying, here's a box of knowledge that needs to be addressed. When you're done with that, you're done with medical school. So then you mentioned uh, a little bit about assessment as well. Um, you're setting guidelines for the assessment of medical students. Uh, what sorts of, kind of going off Ashkan's question, uh, is what sorts of guidelines do you have in place for that, or is that also up to the school then? It's up to the school and COCA, the Commission Aspect College Accreditation, to work to come up with answers on that. Um, all of our students need to pass a national assessment, so there's a standard. So if you say you're a DO, you're an MD, you're a doctor, Everyone knows what basic standard you've done, and they know that you've been directly observed with standardized patients and put on a testing regimen from a national perspective so that there's a standard um, that people can expect when you say you're a physician. What I'm wondering is, is um, if there isn't room in the, in the selection process of equipping pre-meds or people who think they want to go to medical school with tools to find out, well, should I be a doctor? And, and if I should be, what types of areas of medicine would I naturally fall into based upon, you know, of course, from the military, it's always Myers-Briggs, but from other standpoints of doing a, a more comprehensive assessment on the fit of people going into medicine? Because I'm sure there's people who think they 
never really thought maybe I should go to medical school, and yet they might be very suited to being physicians. And there's other people who think, yeah, that's all I want to do, and they find out later on that, man, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be. Um, and so I know that's way out in the left field. Maybe you want to address that later. But It's but not. It's actually a very important question, and it's very germane to the test scores because what I'm telling you is we want to make sure that you're smart enough to get through medical school in four years. And what you're saying is who cares if you're smart enough? You already told me that half the students who apply to DO school don't get in. How do we find the best fit? Mm -hmm. And emotional intelligence is something we're trying to test for. We're learning how to assess it. And a lot of what we say at the medical school level is we can teach people how to interact. I can tell you, I didn't know how to touch people appropriately from a medical perspective when I was in college. I didn't learn that until first year in an osteopathic medical school. Hmm. And we say that we can teach a lot of this, but there's a small subset that we can't teach. Two to 5% of students will fail part three of the boards and they'll fail the um, clinical exams portion. Why? And can we identify who that 2% who we know can't relate to people? Can we identify them sooner? And we're starting to address that question. Who is going to be a good doctor? Who is going to be good at interacting with patients? And the problem is we take students at 22 when they're just learning that. Hmm. And a lot of that can be taught. Some people can't be taught. And I can tell you one of the concepts I look at is simple stupidity versus complex stupidity. <laughs> um, simple stupidity is someone who comes to you with a question that they should know and they don't know. And it seems simple. That's teachable. Complex stupidity is someone who comes to you with a answer that's wrong, that they're sure is right, but they won't be shaken. And they say, this is the answer. This is the response. This is what it's going to be. And you've got to figure out why I'm right. Well, no, you're in medical school and we've got to help you find a way of thinking and identifying issues. And if you're coming with a closed mind, with a worldview that can't be expanded, that can't be broken with logic or new knowledge or even just a different person because there is no one answer for every human being. So how do we find out who is complexly stupid and mm -hmm. is going to have difficulty being brought up into a way of thinking? Is that related to confirmation bias in some way, Tyler? Confirmation bias is more a way of thinking that you jump to a conclusion, um, it isn't a complete answer. You can have confirmation bias and still be trainable. And most of us have some confirmation bias and have ways of thinking that we need to be broken from. For sure. You know, Zach and I were having this conversation yesterday too about, and, and Dr. Fredericks brought up uh, pre-medical education. Um, you know, I'm originally from India and, and some of my family back there is also in medical school and, and they just do things so differently there uh, and, and in many places around the world where there is no undergrad and medical school mm -hmm. and the whole, you know, th there's so much of a time and a monetary investment as compared to other places. So why is that? You know, why do we do things differently here and has it proven to be more effective? I think we're going to hear this question more and more. In America, we value a liberal arts education. We value a background in knowledge and a way of thinking where you have to prove yourself before you get into medical school. Mm -hmm. In other parts of the world, they'll have tests at the end of high school where the top students go to medical school or top students get to choose. But at 18, um, there's still a lot of growing to occur. Mm -hmm. And we still haven't moved from 
pedagogy or teaching children um, to assume knowledge and to gain knowledge to andragogy or adult learning where it's more problem solving and independent thought. First and second year of medical school, there's still a lot of pedagogy. There's still a lot of childlike learning. There's still a lot of giving you facts that you can manipulate. And the question is, do we integrate that into third and fourth year and try and get the thinking at a higher level sooner? Do we delegate that to undergraduate college? And there's a lot of debate on the value of liberal arts education and where it fits. Um, Competency-based education is when you break education down to the smallest, discrete, observable, and testable unit. Do you have the facts necessary to think through things? We're working on that. Um, but once you have the facts down, what is it that is getting you to the higher level? What is it that's actually thinking? And when you've got smartphones that have all the knowledge in there, why do we need to make sure you have it in your head? When I went to medical school, they wanted to know the 36 different vaccinations kids got between zero and five years of age. We no longer test you on the 54 vaccinations kids get because it's going to be in the software. It's going to be in the computer. So what are we testing you on? Interactions of different vaccines, um, makeup schedules when people miss vaccines, what can be done? We've got to get to the thinking stage. Not all of our schools have gotten there and they're in process in getting there. But that's what we're working on, is this, moving from fact-based learning to thought learning. This raises another question. I hear people give the same argument about, well, other countries do it this way and they're younger. Other countries also test you at about 14 years old and determine your future, right? Yeah. So, and then if that's the case, then Geraldine Nurse, my colleague and classmate and former past president of the Ohio Osteopathic Association who started medical school at 41, would never have had a chance to be a doctor. And so I would argue that there's a value in the experiential uh, knowledge of Geraldine Nurse coming as a nurse anesthetist back to medical school to become a family physician and having had thousands of patient interactions because she was able to teach us as younger people in medical school um, about what it's like to actually practice in a clinical setting. And so, that, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses to these systems. And American, American health care education systems have developed over time to meet certain needs and requirements as they're continuing to develop. So, it's, it's not an easy solution to just say, well, it works well in India or Germany this way. Well, yeah, but you started medical school at 28, and you wouldn't have been able to do that in those countries, probably. Um, so it's, it's interesting. So, Tyler, the, the start that we were going to talk about, this, what is so special about training doctors? Because that's what, when we started talking about having this discussion, that's kind of what you wanted to talk about. What is so special about training doctors? What's unique? It's not traditional education where you sit in a classroom and get taught. Medicine is about interactions between people. It's about how you apply knowledge to people and how you individualize what you're doing. So medical education is education that occurs in a non-educational environment. You've got to be at a doctor's office, a hospital, a surgical care center. You can provide care in an airplane, in a mall, or on the street. It's not as controlled. It's not as clean. And when you deal with people, they try and mess you up. Everyone thinks that not only are they unique because of how they act, but people claim unique physiology. And they can override their physiology for a while. They can push back on different things. But people do make it a challenge. And they make it fun. But teaching people in a non-teaching environment really becomes a lot more complicated and a lot different than standard education. 
Can you give an example of that? I'm just curious of someone trying to override their own physiology. Well, people always come and, and say things like, I don't, I have paradoxical allergic reactions. So you can't tell because I'm not swelling up. Reaction. <laughs> well, I don't feel good. And is it normal or is it ab abnormal? People like to be able to predict how they function. They like to think they have control over things, whether they do or not. Um, people come and say, my temperature normally runs high, so 100, 101 is not bad. Well, depends on the time of day, depends on what it's doing, because you're going to extrude more white blood cells in bone marrow at a higher temperature. Mm -hmm. We know that temperature increases at certain times of the day and cert with certain activities. So people will say that they run high or think they run high or try and interpret their body, um, whether they can or not, whether they're right or not. And a lot of times they have a reason for saying it. Certain things may make them feel bad and they may have the wrong words, but they probably have something right about what's going on. Um, and you alluded to, oh, no, go ahead. I have one thing. Um, so you, you kind of uh, talked about how treating patients is kind of like a unique thing, how it's always a different situation and things along those lines. So then it kind of makes me wonder why in our medical school education that we spend so much time in a classroom where it's kind of just learn this, learn this, instead of getting more of that experience where we get used to these situations so we're better prepared for them. So why don't you have more early clinical exposure and why don't we let you play with patients sooner? <laughs> Um, we're afraid mm -hmm. because they really are sick and they really are impressionable and everything you say gets remembered. So we talk about having your ward legs in the past, the first 10 days before you were allowed to see a patient, they, students were observed doing things with each other and with healthy people. So while it's better education, um, there's two sides to the equation and giving you to a, to a patient and having you say something that might be true, but might hurt them. Um, you know, we don't always come out with all the diagnoses right off the bat. We may start off with educating a patient. Mm -hmm. All of our patients know smoking is bad. You put a student in there who just read smoking is bad, more than five cigarettes a day, your risk of cancer is 10 times. They can just start beating the patient, beating the patient, and that'd be the end of the relationship because they know it's bad. A lot of what we do in medicine is wait for the teachable moment. And we use the relationship in a therapeutic way. Um, students don't have the therapeutic relationship. They're interlopers in the care of the patient and they're using the patient to learn abnormal physiology and abnormal responses. We don't want to introduce other um, steps that are out of sync with what's going on. And wait's another one. Physical activity. Actually, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I was going to say, I don't think you guys totally appreciate the uniqueness of medical educators in your CCEs because I have students that will sit in the room and I'll be waiting, I'll be dealing with what Dr. Simon's saying it's very real. It happens to me every clinic, early clinical experience. There'll be a student sitting there and I'll be sitting there talking to Mary or whoever she is. And out of nowhere will come this voice that starts trying to interact with the patient. And I'm just sitting there waiting for something to happen. And I'm thinking, okay, what's the damage control look like on this one? And, and you need to really appreciate, and you won't until you're in attending, but you need to really appreciate the patience of your clinical educators who allow you to do that. 
and then recover, you know, <laughs> and say, okay, well, that's good, but we're going to look at this way. What he's saying is absolutely true. It is a, it is a very complicated dynamic relationship that you're, you're, you're being a participant in or, or a, an observer in. And I, I did what you, exactly you said, Tyler. I just wait with cringing waiting. What are they going to say? I've, uh, she's down to five cigarettes after four packs a day, and now they're going to hammer her for the last five. Yeah, I'm just, yeah it's, it's a totally different experience. And I had a patient in the office about two weeks ago who said, I'm here for my tetanitis vaccine. Tetanitis. And the student said, tetanitis, what is it? Well, I think it's a combination. He goes, oh, maybe it's tetanus and hepatitis. I'll check on it. <laughs> and the patient comes back two weeks later and says, I heard there's a combination shot. I want my tetanus <laughs> hepatitis vaccine. It's like, no. Well, the student said they were going to check on it. Mm-hmm. No, they could check on it, but the answer is still it doesn't exist yet. It might be a good idea. Yeah. But we don't have it. So, I was actually going to say something earlier. You were talking about how you got into the AACOM with the anthrax scare and how sometimes it takes you two to three years to diagnose someone with IBS. Well, I was just thinking back to our GI block last year, and we were given all of this information, like all of these different symptoms and presentations, and I was like, we never heard that this might take two to three years to diagnose I was like, how am I supposed to know this the second I see a patient at one time? And it would have been really refreshing to hear, like, this might be a couple-year process to figure this patient out. And I, I didn't think that. Mm-hmm. It was really nice to hear that. So everyone should listen to Rotation's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You learned something new. It is okay I to don't be have wrong. to find IBS on the first try. Sweet. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I've misdiagnosed IBS in many different ways. And as long mm-hmm. as they keep coming back until it becomes evident, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Because... IBS doesn't happen in a day, and they don't come with a full-blown illness. They come with symptoms that are developing. Mm-hmm. Now, we know 16 to, um, I'm sorry, 25 to 34 years of age is the peak of life. You can recover from everything. You can hide disease by being strong enough to override it. And mm-hmm. a lot of times with aging, things come out. With time, things come out. So uh, I guess a big part of what we do is give you permission to be wrong. Because you have to have a diagnosis to act, and you can be wrong and still provide the right treatment. Mm-hmm. As long as you're willing to rethink things, readdress things, and think broadly, you'll do okay. So, How important is it, do you think, to teach that it's okay to be wrong? Because I think as medical students, we come in and we think we're the smartest of our class from college. We got to medical school. We want to be right 100% of the time. How important is it to you want to teach someone that it's okay, you're going to be wrong, and don't let it get to you, just keep working towards it? Because I'm still getting used to being wrong a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I do put this in the category of relationships where you may be wrong, um, but you'll be happier. Sure. Mm-hmm. And with my wife, um, well... I often say to myself, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? <laughs> and You're do I want to be life, 100% right when I'm not sure if I really am 100% right? And I want to wait until I come to a permanent conclusion. Just because you act on a decision doesn't mean it's a final action. And you always leave a little bit of fudge room for things changing in the future. So in terms of teaching people about being right, it's more about teaching people about a relationship and how to be in a relationship that is not as strong as a marriage, but taking care of patients is a relationship where they count on you for a lot of things and they expect things from you. 
They expect you to respond to their phone calls. They respect. They expect you to address concerns that may or may not be significant. Um, it may be significant to them at the time, mm-hmm. or maybe something underlying the complaint. There's a serious issue about about teaching intellectual resiliency, in that you do come from this sort of rote mechanistic. I've got to get an MCAT so high. I've got to have this so high. I got to be right. And the thing that you learn, number one, is medicine is supremely humbling. Uh, and you'll find out the first couple patients that die on your watch, and you say, why'd that happen? Um, so not to imply there's lots of them, but there are these cases <laughs> mm-hmm. that stand out in your mind thinking, how did that go the way it did? I didn't anticipate that. And the other thing is the continuous thing I preach in small groups, which is your differential diagnosis is the biggest net you can find because you'll never diagnose something you don't think of. You can never narrow yourself into a corner. You always have to understand that what seems obvious Two weeks mm-hmm. later is not the answer. It was something that was subtle that you didn't consider. And what Dr. Simon's saying is that comes out of a relationship. It comes out of listening to the patient, really studying them. Where are they going with this? It is a hard transition. It really is. And I, I almost wish we taught you more like test pilots. You just basically have to realize you're saddling up with a complete prototype every time you walk in the room. They are unique. They have unique genetics. They have unique responses physiologically. And you just have to say, I anticipate they'll go this way, but I'm prepared if it just suddenly departs from controlled flight here. I, I've got a backup plan. And if, I, if you start thinking in that sense, it'll be a lot easier and you'll be a lot happier as a doctor because you realize things can go sideways just like now. Mm-hmm. In fact, they just did go sideways with me pontificating. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. um. <laughs> I'm going to take, take that and run because thinking in differential diagnosis is one of the strengths of a doctor. You have to think of all possible causes of a symptom, not the most probable. And that's very different from business where the profit is getting to the diagnosis earlier and selling people something. So I use this, the analogy of what is the differential diagnosis of a noise in the woods? If you're taking a hike and you hear a noise, it's likely a squirrel. Nice. And you don't have to worry about mm-hmm. hike, continuing to hike. But every once in a while, you'll get bitten by a snake or there'll be a bear. And how often do you have to get bitten by a snake to always worry about being bitten by a snake? And where do you get bitten by a snake? So you have to think broadly or you will get bitten by a snake. So, Dr. Simon, we're going to wrap up this segment of the episode, but we'll be uh, continuing this discussion uh, in just a few moments. But uh, thank you to our listeners that joined us for this week's episode, and uh, we'll, we'll be back next week to continue our conversation about medical education. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the Media and Medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisark Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a League of Champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, 
or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations.